welcome to the Integrated Schools Podcast. I'm Andrew, a white dad from Denver. And I'm Val, a black mom from North Carolina. And this is Show Up, Listen, Stay Put, Speak Up. Ooh, that sounds familiar. Yeah, a brilliant friend of mine once said it. Uh, her name was Dr. Val. Really? <laughs> and and uh, yeah, it was an evolution. So at Integrated Schools for a long time, we, we talked about show up, shut up, stay put. And, you know, this is really trying to push back on the things that we often see white and privileged families do, which is, A, not show up in global majority schools. Mm -hmm. But then if they do show up, talking a whole lot, trying to take over. So Mm -hmm. the second step Mm -hmm. was shut up. (laughs) Not my words, y'all. Not my words. (laughs) (laughs) So the third step was stay put because uh, often white and privileged families will show up in a school, will try to change it, take it over. And then if it doesn't work, we'll Mm -hmm. abandon the school. And so the idea was show up, shut up, stay put felt like a good counter to those tendencies. But I think we, we realized something that you helped us realize was that there is a limitation to that because just shutting up and just staying put doesn't actually make for better schools. Yeah, no, absolutely. We know the perils of remaining silent. And so as people who care about what's happening in our schools, I think it is important to use our voice to advocate for all young people. Yeah, that speak up part is really important. And, you know, it sort of it sort of fits in with our theory of change. If you want to check it out, it's on the integratedschools.org website. We think about this theory of change as contemplate, desegregate, integrate, advocate. And so what does that mean? Contemplate. We've got to change the ways we think about and talk about what it means to be a good parent, what it means to go to a good school, what it means to get the best for our kids, what our responsibility is to our community and to all the kids in our society. That is the contemplation part. The next step is desegregate. And so we have to actually enroll our kids in schools because it is in enrolling in schools that we actually have the opportunity to know what's going on in schools firsthand. And then we have to integrate because it's not enough to just show up. We actually have to become part of the community. And I think that piece is, is really crucial. And we spend a lot of time talking and thinking about that. But then that last step is advocate. And that is, you know, speaking up. That's where things get tricky, particularly for white and privileged families, I think. Yeah. You know, as you were going through that list again, because the words that you use were very simple, it can seem like the process itself is simple. But each one of those steps takes a significant amount of energy and commitment and community to do well. And I imagine there are instances where you don't get it right when your kid's in elementary school. It might take until middle school or through high school in order for you to feel like you're in your groove in this work. And so that's just a point to to share with listeners that <laughs> those four steps you can list them off in like yeah. 10 seconds but it could take you 10 years to, to do that well mm-hmm. yeah that's a great point and and i mean i think we've we've had over 100 episodes you know f- focusing on each one of those steps <laughs> right. and we haven't had we haven't had that many focusing on this advocate piece which is why this episode today is really going to focus on how we think about that advocating piece. And we certainly don't arrive at clear, simple solutions, but no. we definitely grapple with, you know, what, what does it mean to show up? What does it mean to speak up? Um, because it is an important piece of the puzzle. One thing I learned about speaking up that I like to share with folks is, you know, at first when you start to speak up, there's a significant amount of time between you thinking about speaking up and then you actually speaking up. It could be a whole week where you're like, dang, I should have said something. Dang, I should have said yep. something. And you feel fearful around it or maybe nervous or your hands start to sweat, et cetera. Uh, the more often you speak up, those those physiological feelings don't go away. But the gap between the time you think about speaking up and the time that you do shortens. And mm. so you're still nervous. You're still scared. You're still like, am I going to say the right thing? But you respond more quickly, and I think that that practice equals more confidence, and you feel like you can you can do it. Yeah, that's great advice. Practice. You're welcome. You're welcome. So the the origin of this episode actually came from a voice memo. We always encourage listeners to send in their voice memos, and Becky in Pittsburgh did, and this is what she had to say. Hi, Integrated Schools. My name is Becky. I'm a white mom from Pittsburgh. My daughters are in first and third grade, and they go to our neighborhood school that is majority black, majority poor. Something that I have been wrestling with a lot lately, that tension of, you know, my kid's going to be okay, and there are some real systemic inequities and challenges that our school is facing. So we go to this neighborhood school. It's been a pretty great experience 
in a lot of ways, but also a lot of challenges. We've had three, four principals over the last three years. We don't have a full-time nurse because we have all these like para shortages and subbing shortages. We've got teachers that are really stressed out. We've got whole classes missing recess. We have kids classes having silent lunch because they were too rowdy the day before. There are just some real challenges that do make the school environment harder for kids to feel like love and belonging and to love school and to want to come to school and learn. Um, Yeah. So I'm just really wrestling with what are the things you let go and what are the things that like we do need to be fighting for and we do need to be raising our voices and agitating the folks in leadership around some of these things that our schools don't have. All that just to say, I'm really struggling with like, when do we say this is not okay And when do we show up and shut up? I think it's a really hard tension to be in, to both want to advocate for people to go to your school and also recognize that the school, it's not fair to kids. So we actually have a voice memo turned into a podcast? We do, yeah. That's so dope. That's dope. and, And not only just turned in the topic, but we asked Becky to come on and join us for the conversation because it got us thinking here. It's something that Certainly, I have grappled with very similar things, and we hadn't really talked about it on the podcast, so we thought we'd have Becky come on. But we figured it couldn't just be Becky, so we wanted to bring in some additional backup. And uh, that's when, once again, Val, you came through with one of your amazing friends. Well, you know, I, do, I know dope people. That's literally you know people. The, the story of my life. And so we invited Dr. Tatul Natoya, an education consultant, and most importantly in this conversation, a Black parent who advocates with and for Black students and Black parents in his school community. He brought great perspective. And yeah, like I said, we don't really get to clear here step by step how you should speak up, but certainly grapple with the challenges of what it looks like to speak up. I'm really looking forward to this. Let's take a listen. Hey everyone, my name is Tatul Toya. I'm out here in Southern California and I have two kids, a seven-year-old and a four-year-old. I'm Becky, a white mom from Pittsburgh, and I have two kids in first and third grade. And Tatul, where do your kids go to school? So the seven-year-old goes here locally. Uh, The four-year-old, I could not for the life of me get him into their early ed program. So he's at a Montessori school. So he'll be in kindergarten next year. And Becky, you're also at your neighborhood school. But from what I gather, it's not a neighborhood school that a lot of people go to. Like a 24% capture rate. A lot of folks have opted out of that neighborhood school. What's the capture rate? So that's the people in the feeder pattern that go to that school. Sounds like my district. Yeah. Three out of four kids leave. Three out of four kids Rather leave. than going to that school. Yes, yes. And the demographics of the capture area does not represent the school, of course. Just proportionally white and middle class folks are opting out of that school. So you've both made the choice to opt for your local neighborhood public schools. Yep. And, you know, my wife and I were big proponents of public schools. So we wanted to be able to send them to the public school, be able to impact their learning, and for them to see kids that look like them and that they can feel a level of self-awareness. Because when I was younger, you know, there were a lot of, a lot of black kids. Like I remember, mm-hmm. I remember in elementary school, there was at two friends who were black, three friends who were black. So that was an interesting experience for me growing up and what it did for my own self-image. So I don't want my kid to have to go through that, my, my, mm-hmm. my kids. So we're really making a very intentional effort at making sure that they're around people who look like them so they don't feel mm-hmm. like they're an outcast because they're the only kid in the school with locks. Right. Yeah. Right. And Becky, how how did you come to make that choice? So I'm a social worker background. I right now do uh, campaign work. I'm like political strategist, I guess you could say. I'm trying to really own that title. But we kind of came to the integrated schools conversation. My husband is a teacher and he's always taught in neighborhood, majority black, majority poor schools. So we've kind of watched this dynamic of of neighborhood schools not having what they need for kids. And so before we even had kids, we were like, if we ever have kids, we should send our kids to the neighborhood school. And lo and behold, we did have kids. And then we had to actually do the thing that we said mm. that we believed. <laughs> Is 
neighborhood schools synonymous with a black school? Because I hear like neighborhood schools. Do white neighborhoods not have schools in them? Like, <laughs> that's a great me. question. I don't know. Like, I don't. Great know. question. <laughs> okay, so in like the city, uh, there are a few neighborhood schools that are not majority black, but in Pittsburgh, almost all of them are majority black, and a lot of white families will go to magnets or private. Yeah, no, and and Andrew says neighborhood schools all the time too. The context <laughs> varies because there are certainly, and I think you know, in places that school choice is harder you end up with neighborhoods that are more concentrating of privilege, right? Mm. Like if, if you're in a, a school system where you have to go to your neighborhood school, then the property values determine more where people live. There's less, I mean, you actually see this in research, there's less gentrification in neighborhoods where there is less school choice. Wild. Because when you, say, when you say to white families, you can live in this diverse, hip, fun, artsy neighborhood with great food and also send your kid across town to the still all-white school, then that becomes very appealing. So people are like, oh, wow, yeah, sign me up for that. But if you're like, you have to go to school where you live, and people are, all right, I'm going to live in the suburbs. So give me some of that energy that you're making with your face. What do you Yeah, that's 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 the local district here. We have to work in another district that's maybe 20 minutes away, and a lot of parents would send their kids to, to these schools. And I remember folks were saying, yeah, you know, Great city, but terrible schools. I was like, mm. wow, that's, mm-hmm. that's not good. And then when you get here, you're like, oh, so all of the people of color live in this part of town, and that's where they send all their kids. But if you go to the other side of town, that's very affluent, and those schools are where all the white parents right. send their, 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 their students. So if you look at the neighborhood schools where I live in this part here, it's all black and brown. And the neighborhood schools across town, yeah, you might see some the sprinkling of, of of pepper here and there, but for the majority, you did not call me time, pepper. Sorry, <laughs> different shade of pepper, different shade of pepper. Okay, mocha, coffee, coffee au lait, mocha. I will be, I will be pepper from here on out. Good, <laughs> I love it. So then, when you start to think about gentrification and redlining and the discrepancy and achievement and all of that stuff, you're like, wow, all baked into the batter, mm. and it's frustrating. So we have to like. Do some about it. Mm-hmm. Yep. Becky. Yeah. Just listening to what Tatul talks about with his school experience. Are you worried about that at all with your young people's experience and their sense of identity? So it's interesting. What do you think? Yeah. So they they have a lot of white and black people around them. So my families are all white, but in our friends, we have diverse groups of friends. So they're not only having one experience, and our school's like 20% white, so there's a couple white kids in every class, but they are like, I want, I want braids in my hair. You know, like they're, they, like they would like black hairstyles. And so we are like, well, um, I will give you like four braids max. I'm not going to do more than that. You know, there <laughs> is a fine, wonderful thing to explore and figure out for themselves. So I, I, I don't know. I think it's interesting. I had such a different upbringing that it, I, I think that like, you know, if we're like somebody new is coming over to dinner, they're like, are they white or black? And I'm like, I never would ask that question because I would have been like, obviously they're white. And so I never would have even considered mm-hmm. what race are they? Um, so they're just like having a more mixed race, normal experience, which is a really wonderful thing. And like at our school, we have black history concert, you know, things that are centering the black experience that I'm not sure they would get at the majority white I'm sure Magnet they school. would not get it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I am 100% right. sure they would not get it. <laughs> and the conversations we're having, I mean, it's it's very cool to see how much their, like, racial awareness, where it's at now versus where I was even into college. Yeah. I mean, I, I think about that question of, I was one of a very small handful of white kids in elementary school. And I feel like I've got, like, little hints of what you're talking about, tool, right? Of, like, not quite fitting in, of not knowing exactly where I belonged, but I don't know that I would have necessarily been able to articulate this in any way then. But looking back, it felt like a gift because the stakes were much lower. You know, I still left school into a white America and the administrators and the teachers were still mostly white in the school. White culture still permeated the school. Amongst mm. the students on the playground, there were places where I felt like, oh, like maybe I'm not the standard. Maybe I'm not like default which to me feels like sort of a gift in the end. But I think that that's a, you know, that's that's like part of this sort of white privilege in some ways, right? Is that like I could have that experience in elementary school and there was no way that I was going to come away from that like questioning my, my, my own value as a white person. 
Mm. Which I do think is like a, a tension and a difference between the experience for a white kid versus a versus a black kid. Yeah, it wasn't as accepting for me. And there was no connection. There was nothing that I can look to and say, that's me. I'm 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 connected with that. And, you know, I, I felt a little I didn't know at the time, but I felt really rudderless and not knowing mm. which direction to move. I feel like there was, in the 80s, with the crack epidemic and everything, there was a mass exodus of Black families out of the cities into the suburbs. And I never really thought about it when I was growing up. But like our story, my parents were immigrants. They moved into the city. We lived in a one-bedroom apartment, moved on up like the Jeffersons. We moved to a two-bedroom apartment, thought we were doing some things. My dad hated the fact that, you know, there was... Drugs in the neighborhood, there were gangs. So what do we do? We move on up and we move on out to the suburbs. And when we moved was the neighborhood when we moved out here was mostly white and some Latino families, not very many black families. So in elementary school, it, like I said, it was probably five of us. And like self-image, your hair, mm. things that I like to do, things that I'm into. We were a foreign family. And I'm never going to forget one day, they were asking about foods. What foods do you like? Mm-hmm. And I was like, yo, we make this, these bomb. They're like, I didn't, I didn't know what to call them in, in English. I was like, they're like bananas. Kids are like, bananas? What are the, and they're plantains. But I know love what they were called. Love plantains. I know what they were called. I called them yeah. bananas. And, you know, yep. you mean you love bananas? I'm like, you fry bananas? So I, I had no language for it. So, you know, things like that always made me feel, you know, some kind of way. Mm-hmm. And I never felt connected to anything at my school. Uh, and mm-hmm. when I went to middle school, LA Unified, come to find out, had this big busing program. And they would bus a bunch of kids from the city into the valley. So a bunch of black kids were at the school, like just out of nowhere. Like it was like night and day. I woke up one morning and a bus full of black kids got off the bus. I'm like, whoa, wow. And I became friends with them. We became really cool. And for high school, intentionally, I didn't want to go to the neighborhood school. So I had to get bused across town. And my bus ride every day was about an hour, hour and a half. And same thing at that school. Majority black, my, m- most of my friends were coming mm-hmm. from L.A., bust in. But that's when I kind of felt more connected because there were more black students at that school. So it kind of turned around for me a little bit there. And that's why I want my, my son to be a part of some type of, of black experience so he doesn't have to go through, you know, some of the things that I went through in terms of image and all that stuff and just, just breed that self-confidence in him now. Mm-hmm. Mm. What was your schooling experience like growing up, Becky? All white private, K to 12. So, I mean, high school was a little more diverse, but it was, yeah, I mean, it, small. I mean, it was 28 kids in our class, K to 8, the oh, private wow. school down the street. I never even rode the bus. It was very different. I grew up in the country yeah. in in eastern Pennsylvania. And same for my husband. He had the same type of schooling mm. experience. When were you radicalized? When did you decide... <laughs> <laughs> what was it in your in your past that you were like, oh, actually, that thing that I had was not because because I'm sure your parents sacrificed to yeah. be able to give you that experience, and that was considered a very valuable thing that they invested in you. What was it that kind of made you decide maybe that's not what I want for my kids? I mean, when I moved to Pittsburgh, I got more engaged in racial justice work and educating myself, and and so as I learned more about some of the dynamics and the ways that our systems are working to perpetuate these inequalities that are just like, if you do nothing, they just continue to perpetuate. And then, you Mm. know, like I said, my husband teaching in neighborhood schools and seeing, like, it's not that the kids don't want to learn, it's that the kids can't learn. It's that we are creating our schools in ways that are not providing them spaces to really thrive. So I think we, we saw that, he saw that from the inside in ways that made it it's like you can't once you pull back the curtain you can't unsee it and then you like nicole hannah Mm. jones who's like lays it all out for you in this beautiful way that changes you forever um or for me and you just you just can't unsee it so i know you do some advocating as a parent and with other parents can you talk a little bit about that work and why it matters yeah, so there is an African-American parent council here locally, and I knew some people in the districts, and they pointed me to the AAPC, and I started going to their meetings. And, you know, it was just interesting that, you know, there was a group here locally that was advocating for, for Black parents. So they asked me to be on the board, and I was like, ah, sure, I'll be on the board. So I did it, 
And our work has really changed. I felt like when I first started, and this is my opinion, if anybody in AEPC listens to this and get mad at me, this is my opinion. <laughs> so I Duly felt noted. that when we started, it was very adversarial. We were really like, the district, you guys are doing this for our Black kids. We demand, we demand, and we demand. And over the years that we've been working with the district, we've actually grown to be more collaborative. Like now they're listening to our input. They're listening to things that we have to say. And one of the big things that we're all really proud of, we took a look at the suspension rates in the district. And of course, just like any other district in the country, I'd I'd put put money on this, Mm -hmm. that wherever you have Black students, they're going to make up more of the suspensions in the schools. Just is what it is. The reasons reach are behind the data. So we pushed to eliminate discretionary suspension. So like kid mouthing off at a teacher doesn't cause a suspension. Mm-hmm. A kid, you know, being defiant, maybe he's not bringing a backpack to school or the case may be, doesn't warrant a suspension. Like major things, bringing a weapon to school, fighting, those kind of things. Yeah, of course, we have to do what we have to do to keep people safe. So we pushed to eliminate discretionary suspensions and we got some traction. So, you know, that's been really good to see that as a parent organization that we're able to advocate for this, push for it, keep the district accountable. And it wasn't adversarial. It wasn't us against you. It wasn't pointing fingers that you guys are failing our kids. It was, here's the data. Here's what we see. What are you going to do about it? And the district kind of stepped up. As a parent, I can say, yo, this is what we're looking for. This is what I'm doing. This is what's going to happen. And we can push for that. And we can push as hard as we need to until things start to move. So I'm really excited about the work that we're doing. Can you talk about the role of white parents in that work? Yeah. So I I was listening to a radio show, and I can't remember who it was, but he was talking about the, the civil rights movement. The question was, well, what are some things that we could have learned from the civil rights movement? And one of them really resonated with me. He said, we became so pro-Black and into the movement that we pushed out some of the folks that we needed to be allies on our side. Mm. Um, so what type of coalitions can you build? Because you need the coalitions. We we don't have the resources. We don't have the manpower to flip the system by by ourselves. We just don't. So you need those coalitions. So that really stuck with me. You need the coalitions. You need a clear message. How then do we get those, and I call them co-conspirators. How do we get those co-conspirators to know this is a problem. This is a problem that we need to solve. And we need to make things equitable for our students and what can we do? And, you know, I think it's important to know what it is, the problem, the challenges are that folks of color are having. And, you know, what is my role in that? And how can I fit in? And I think also on the organizations that are, you know, like ours, like how do we open the doors so folks can feel welcome to come in and they can be, you know, co-conspirators with us. They can maybe help us push some initiatives forward in the district if we're not getting enough hay. Maybe they know someone who we should be talking to. You know, I think having those folks alongside with you is really important in pushing this forward. Because without that, I mean, you're kind of going uphill with just one paddle. And it's, it's not enough. Especially if you're paddling like up ours, a hill, that's really hard. <laughs> that's a bad sign. <laughs> Something's gone badly wrong. If you're paddling up a hill, yeah. If you're paddling up a hill, yeah. All types of problems. <laughs> I have a question for Tuso. So, in your district, do you see big disparities, like between the opportunities between schools? Like, you oh, know, absolutely. Like, and and do you address that, or are you just like fighting for the better things, or are you also sort of calling out the disparities and trying? Like, how are you dealing with that? It's like an elephant, right? You have to eat it one bite at a time. There's Mm. so many things. Like we have this math program here. Probably 1% of the student body is black, right? Mm. There's this suspension thing. There's Mm. opportunity gap in English and math, right? So, I mean, there's just so much to to take on. We we, we were deciding to take on one at a time. And, you know, once that gets done, get that under control, Move on to the next thing, get that under control. But at the same time, starting those conversations in different places. So it's not just us who are pushing the envelope. Other folks are also having the conversation so we can all galvanize and and make a difference. If in my district, we try to address the disparities between schools, I don't even know how much traction we could get because 
they are like so far apart when you look at the affluent schools and black and brown neighborhood schools in terms of facilities, advanced course offerings, mm-hmm. electives, mm-hmm. resources. Like that feels like a mountain that will be really difficult to climb. And I know <laughs> those affluent schools aren't giving up anything. Like I know that's not going to mm-hmm. happen. And I'm not sure we have the time to wait for us to get all the resources to equalize that that playing field in that that way. Um, yeah, that that's tough because when I think about the different school, I'm like, oh my gosh, it's not even it's not even close. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's so much, Ralph. There's mm-hmm. so much. Yeah, for if you sure. try to do it all, mm-hmm. it comes overwhelming. But can you do one thing? Sure, let's do it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I mean, one thing that. We encourage folks, particularly folks like Becky and I, to do here about it is to enroll our kids in our neighborhood schools. Mm-hmm. But there are ways in which that can feel somewhat countercultural, particularly if three out of four families are are not making that choice who live in your neighborhood. Mm-hmm. But Becky, that is a choice that you made. You decided to go against the uh, cultural norms. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the first day of school after you made that choice? Um, I was so nervous. And, and yeah. I'm like embarrassed to admit, but the whole like month of August, I had a sore neck. Like I was doing heat pads and the first day of school, my kid comes home, gives it a 10 out of 10. She loved it. My sore neck was gone like that. Like mm-hmm. I was feeling my yeah. angst. I was feeling it in my body. Yeah. What do you think that angst was about? Yeah. So most of the families that we knew didn't go to that school. We were friends with a lot of folks in that capture area in our neighborhood. And I don't know how much other people experience this, but when you send your kid to the school that most people have said is not good enough for my kid, you hear a lot of obnoxious things like it's crazy over there. You know, that school is failing and you're allowed to go to a different school and, you know, lots of things that like fed into already my perceptions, my assumptions, my, you know, that you're trying to combat in yourself, um, classism, racism, the things that, you know, is my kid going to be okay here? And then one day... The kid comes home and is like, oh, actually. This was a great was school. school. It was great. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, you're fine. These are kids. We're kids. They're our community. Why in the world have I been so nervous? Mm. Um, so you've been part of your school community for a couple of years now, three or four years. I guess a couple of those were pandemics. So I don't, like, yeah. don't know exactly how to, how to count all that time. But you were surprised a little bit at how great the first day was. Big release of tension. Mm-hmm. What what have been some other sort of surprises over the, the time you've been part of the school community? Yeah, so my kids have made great friends. I've built some community with some families there, though some have left. And then, you know, the pandemic did create, it was a little bit harder to build those relationships with other families. And yeah. we're starting to get back to that again, like playing on the playground after school and hanging out a little bit. But yeah, so my, I mean, my kids have great friends there and we've met some really great teachers and staff. I I mean, they've already both had three black teachers and they're in first and third grade. And right, that's not, the school has done a really great job of of having black administrators and teachers. And that has been a really cool thing about it. But there are also a lot of really hard things about the school. Like we've had four principals in three years and several months with no principal. And Wow. Like my kid didn't have a third grade math teacher for almost two months because she left. And while they they had lots of time to know and replace, they just the district was not supporting our school to get this new teacher. So then she's like spending Mm. time in second grade. Like they're splitting the kids up when there's not enough subs. We don't have like a gym teacher because they're out. And so like kids aren't having gym or the teacher is just like, let's go outside. You know, like there's a lot of challenges. So some of the fight that I feel sometimes is like, we need to f- look at this and see how much of a disservice we're doing to some of our schools. I know this is happening at schools across the district and like, we need a nurse, but these nine schools also need a nurse. Like, Yeah, I think what maybe some of these decision makers are banking on is that the caregivers and parents at these schools that are under-resourced don't know how well the other schools have it. And frankly, you don't mm-hmm. always. You just assume, like, this is the schooling experience that I have. So my high school had barbed wire fence around it. That's what I thought all oh. high schools did. I mean, mm-hmm. who knows, right? And so, to tool to your point, staying connected or getting connected across coalitions, across the district, 
is one way to say, hey, no, we know our district can provide these services because they do provide these services to this school. Mm. How do we do a better job of making sure that everyone in our district is able to access them? I mean, to me, this is like the the last step in the benefits of integration, right? It's like the, the reason that we say, well, that like those schools are never going to give that stuff up is because that is where the political power lies. That is where the, the district is going to be most responsive because those are the white privileged parents who are going to, you know, cause a stink if you ask them to give something up. They're going to threaten to move to the private schools, threaten to move to the city next door, to the suburbs. They're going to take their precious white kids out of the school system and so the district, you know, for fear of of white flight, which I feel like drives so many decisions in school districts, whether explicitly or or implicitly, is like we have to do whatever we can to keep the white families in the district. And the hope, at least, in pushing for white and privileged families to invest in the neighborhood school, in the under-resourced school, is that we start to put some of that political capital into those schools. And now we start to shift the way that decisions get made. But I think that one of the challenges in, in that is, I mean, one of the challenges is the, like, you know, the saviorism. Like, I, you know, I, I can't go to this school to try to save this school. And then and then the, the thing you said earlier, Tatul, that I've been thinking about is like, we have to know what the problems are. And, and I feel this struggle. I know Becky feels this struggle is like, how do I know what the real problems are? Because I have all sorts of ideas baked mm. into my mind about what a quote, good school should be. And it doesn't have barbed wire. And yet your school that had barbed wire was a great oh, school Oh, I loved it. You. Oh my gosh. Right. I loved it. I had a great time. I have great self-concept, you know. So I like, love you know, I, I could show up in your school and be like, the barbed wire, this is terrible. It has to go away. My vision of a good school does not include barbed wire. And then I could rally, you know, a handful of other white parents and we could go and tear down the barbed wire. And now actually maybe your school is not as safe. And it, it, we didn't, we haven't done anything to actually improve your, your school experience. And so there's this tension of like, you know, I show up in this school. I want the school to be better. There are things that are great about the school. It is surprising, like all the messages that I've received from my white friends about this is a terrible school for my kids. I, okay, so now I've set that aside because actually they showed up in the school and they're 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 it's a loving environment. There's kids. It's like not hellscape of a school. Right. Actually, it's really lovely. Cool. But also, then you're in the school for a little while and you're like, wow, our computer lab is at our elementary school. The computer lab is like eight Windows 98 machines that are like duct taped together that no one's allowed to touch except for when testing happens, right? Wow. Because they have to work for testing. And you're not allowed to use computers otherwise, right? The school around the corner has like all brand new iMacs. Like, okay, like that, some, something doesn't seem right here. I feel like I don't trust my instincts about what is good or bad about a school. And so like, how do I know what are the things that do matter to go advocate for? And what are mm-hmm. the things that don't? Can I add something really quick of examples like, when teachers are making the kids have silent lunch because they were too loud and rowdy the day before, or when the whole class loses recess, or the bathrooms. You cannot go to the bathroom except on bathroom breaks. The bathrooms are locked. You know, like, there are things that's like, this doesn't feel good for kids. But, like, how much of that is my own whatever of how I define a good school, and how much of that is, yeah, this isn't good for kids. What are we doing that we have not created a school where kids always get recess and get to go to the bathroom when they need to go, you know. I can see those things do not make for good pedagogy um, and not a loving place for young people. We don't want those things. Mm -hmm. No, and I was just thinking about groups like ours and how important having these advocacy groups are because these things are what's going to matter to to us, right? And is the barbed wire fence at Valerie School the big thing? No, don't take the barbed wire fence down. We got a computer lab running Windows 98 we have to figure out, right? Mm-hmm. So there's there's some real problems happening that are really impacting our kids. And if you're not part of that community, I can advocate all I want. But if I don't know, don't hear it from the, from the mouths of the people. Like, I'm just speculating. And now I'm going and I got a friend who has a construction company. And we talked to the principal. Principal said, do it. I don't care. Get the thing. And then we tear down the barbed wire fences. We feel good about ourselves. And our parents are like, what? You put all that into you that? You wasted your time, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what are you doing? Yeah. That's totally right? what happened. So, like, for for us and our local situation, the suspension thing we thought was a big deal. So, like, yeah. yo, let's galvanize around this. Okay, now we're all in this together instead of you're doing something way over there. And we're like, who's that? Why is mm-hmm. he doing that for? That that doesn't make any... Uh, okay, whatever, right? And it's it's not a cohesive message. So, I think... I think looking for that, and if something like that doesn't exist, like, 
Ask the parents. They'll tell you what, what needs to happen. And then once you start to galvanize and start to engage the parents, you'll get all the answers that you need. And then I think that that could be the starting point. I also want to challenge white folks to be more concise in their language. And so when you hear things like, oh, it's not a good school, and just leave that thought at that and don't explain like why they say it's not a good school. So if you say it's not a good school because... The children are treated like they are in prison and the city or the district hasn't invested the same amount of money for technological resources. Then I think that hopefully this is a hope would help to develop some critical thinking around like why this is the case. Right. So mm. if a person said that to me, like they treat kids like they are in prison. You know, my my next question would be, well, like, why are they doing that? And why are they allowed to do that? And so and then that makes me want to advocate for a change versus just saying, oh, it's just not a good school. So when you hear other white people say that, ask them the next question. Like, what do you mean by that? Can you be more specific? Why do you think that is right? And not just take it at face value like, oh, it's just not a good school. Yeah. No. Mm -mm. The school isn't bad because of the kids. No. Mm -hmm. School is bad because of the system. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. what piece of the system? are we talking about? Is it the communication mm -hmm. to parents? Is it the rollout of the curriculum? Is it how the kids are treated during lunch? Or that, you know, what is it? Because, you know, I think too many times when we talk about our neighborhood schools, we always point to the kids. Mm -hmm. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard parents don't care. Mm -hmm. Parents don't yeah. care. Kids don't care. Nobody cares. That's why the school sucks. That's, that's, and that's not the, true. The, yeah. 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 That is the, that's a popular message. Another question for my white friends here. Do you all like learn about the system? Like, do you talk about the system? Because I feel like that is a common theme in black communities. Like we're like, we don't blame ourselves for this. Right? Right. Like we're able to identify it as a systemic issue. But is that something that is common in conversation with just among white folks? Give us the secrets. <laughs> The secrets, please. <laughs> Let me take my white, the white secrets. Yes, I want some white secrets. That feels like a big question. I think that woke white people, people who are trying to care about racial justice issues, um, I think that there is conversations about how it is the system. However, I think that as long as you keep the system at an arm length, you never actually have to confront you, how you actually are believing how it's interacting with kids, right? So like before I started school, I was nervous about kids in the school. Like, how is this going to go? And then I get there and I'm like, the kids are great. We actually have a, a school system that doesn't quite have what it needs. And so there are ways that we're not supporting our students in ways, especially some of our high need students, they're not getting what they need. And so like, I, I think as you confront your own things and experience it in a personal way, then you can then you can interrogate the system in a different way. We can like read the talking points and understand, but when you live it, yeah. It so like in your K-12 experience, your parents weren't like, oh, wait, here's how the system works. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah, definitely not. My earliest memories of talking about it included like a an approach, like a lens from a systems standpoint. I think there is something like healing about that. Like like it's it's important to your soul to look at the, the like the world around you and and be able to point to the systemic issues mm -hmm. and and I think conversely it's like important for white people's souls not like for the good of humanity but like for like an individual white person to ignore the systems right because because it's it's damaging to look at the state of the country and recognize that both that it is systemic but then also like that you are part of that system and I think I think you're exactly mm -hmm. right Becky it's like the arms length there mm -hmm. is this like new awakening among white people of a recognition of systemic racism, right? And and now, like, obviously, the the predictable backlash to that as well. There is some level of awareness that, that it is more than just your uncle with a Confederate flag that is, like, racism, but that racism has some, some like, systemic elements. But I think even still, there is, like, a an arm's length. Like, yes, that is that system, but, like, what do I have to do with that? I'm a good white person. I'm not doing that i'm just sending my kid to the environmental charter school like what does that have to do with the systemic racism to me this is the this is again the power of of the school that your kids are in becky the school that my kids are in is that it is now i intimately see the way that i am part of the system so it's like one thing to acknowledge that there is a system it's a whole, another step to say like wait a minute i am also part of this mm. yeah that's important i think you're like immersing yourself in the system because part of white privilege is that 
I have options. I, could, mm-hmm. I don't have to go to neighborhood school. I can send my kid across town. And it's all good. But for me, where else am I going to go? I can't. Well, not mm-hmm. me personally. I think I'm, I'm, I'm very privileged. And Val, I think you would. Yeah. I don't know if I'm putting your words in your mouth. Dr. Brown, but I'm sure you would say the same thing. That I mean, we, we both have, have doctorates on here. We, know. we both have doctorates. And we're in education, so we know how right. to navigate the system. But yep. the majority of Black folks in a city, they don't have that same level. So if the school down the street sucks, sorry, Johnny, I sucked it up. You got to suck it up, right? Yes. And nothing ever gets changed. No one, no one ever comes through the system and says, yeah, the system does suck. It's Johnny and Johnny's dad and Johnny's grandfather, they all didn't care about school, so they deserve what they get. And I think mm. it's it's easy for white folks who aren't in it to just say, well, if they just worked harder, if they just went to class, they stopped ditching, if they stopped acting up, they stopped playing that loud rap music and, mm-hmm. you know, not spend so much money on them Jordans and went and bought mm-hmm. a calculator, dating myself, went and bought a TI-85 <laughs> calculator and... <laughs> You know, all of that stuff, they'd, they'd be better like my kids are. That totally erases what's happening and the experiences that's happening to all those Black families in that district, and it's never going to change mm-hmm. unless we change it. You do all this work to tool with organizing Black parents in schools to try to, you know, create some sense of possibility and effective advocacy in an individual school context I mean, I, I struggled when I first got to the school to know, like, well, I'm here. I'm ready to be involved. I want to help. Where where should I put my energy? How do I know, like, when to show up or where to where to mm. speak up? So th- there's a couple of different things that I'm thinking about, like bringing up inequities that you're seeing. I'm thinking those conversations need to happen. And it can't always come from the teacher that looked like me and Val, right? It has to come from you, Andrew, who... You can step up and say, this doesn't seem right. And even for me, like being able to, Valerie, when you started that clear the air thing, Mm -hmm. there are some conversations I was reluctant to have. Mm -hmm. And just through our conversations, I was like, wow, I need to bring that up because that wasn't cool when the principal said that or when the teacher said that. So the next time it came up, I had questions. I'm like, okay, well, why do you think that? So I think just asking. And let me tell you something, Valerie. I don't know if you know this is your superpower. But she is the best at asking questions whenever she wants to poke and prod. She'll mm-hmm. ask a question after a question after a question, and then truth comes to light. So I've been trying to take that approach, just asking questions, not being upset. That's, not saying, look, huh. Help me out. Help me understand. Yeah, all, this, all these black kids sitting here and suspended. I have a question. I noticed, this is typical Valerie, I noticed that there are... Five African-American students weren't in class. What's happening? Help me understand, right? And just go through and ask the question. I think that, and it's and it's it's not as confrontational on your end, but I think it still forces the conversation as if it were like you busting in and waving mm-hmm. your fist. Uh, I appreciate that. Andrew, to your question, two things came up for me. One, and I think the challenge is whether or not you trust your own assessment of what's right and wrong. And so obviously being in relationship and community would be an important gauge for you in that. And then my other wondering was, are you responding in a way that's authentic? And I think being in a relationship will help you kind of hone that authenticity. If you and I are talking and we're noticing these things and you're bringing that up and then, and you decide to show up authentically as who you are, Right. If if that means like write a write a mean letter or galvanize some businesses or whatever it is, I think that's really important for white folks to do. Like just be yourself, <laughs> how how you would show up, and and try to make sure it's informed by actual relationships of the people that are are there. You know, I love the community piece. Yeah, like be in community because the community will tell you which direction. That's that's brilliant. Mm-hmm. Well, and sometimes. Like, I've asked some questions about, like, why is everyone missing recess? Like, what's happening? Do we not have enough people to monitor? Like, what's going on? And then my kid gets to be an exception. I was volunteering one day, and they were like, most of the class had to wait five minutes. And, like, she could pick one person, and they could go. And I was like, Mm. what is happening? You want a good experience for your kid and all the kids. So there are there are pitfalls to this. We have to advocate in ways Mm -hmm. that's like, I don't just want this for my kid. So, yeah, I think it's challenging. And, yeah. I, you know, at our school, I think it's like 
21% of Black students are at reading level in third grade. And for white kids, it's like 33%. For both, it's pretty low. And when you talk to parents, my kid struggling to read is a big concern. And so it's like, which are the things that are affecting that the most? What do you fight for? Uh, and sometimes it, for me, has just been like that big, the obvious stuff that our school is lacking, trying to fight for. But it's bigger than that. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. it's a lot. It is a it's lot. An, it's, an, it's an elephant. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> like Tatul said, right, it's an elephant. You have to eat it one bite at a time. But which bite do you eat first? Because, yeah, like the kids aren't reading. So, like, is that about curriculum? Probably. Is that about you know, teacher training, probably. Is that about they're frustrated because they didn't get any recess and so now they can't concentrate because they got too much energy? Probably. Is that because like their food is not actually healthy? Probably. Is that because there's barbed wire around their school and it's giving them the idea that they're in prison and not in school? Probably. Where do you like take the first bite? And I think something else that you said, Becky, that made me think is like the, the it, it is tricky because the expectations that the school system has around white parents, mm. you know, in all the ways that, that the school system expects black parents not to care, the school system expects white parents to care and Say be that. loud and obnoxious. Say right. That. And so and so the expectation is that we're going to show up and cause trouble. And so if you show up and you're like, hey, I really it's like really seems like a problem to me that the kids aren't getting recess. The easiest thing for the school to do is be like, oh, cool. Like your kid can go to recess. The other kids still can't go to recess, but your kid can go to recess. I think like the advocating at the district level feels really different to me because it feels much easier. Like those are decisions that are inevitably going to affect Mm -hmm. a whole lot of a whole lot of kids. But when I show up in the school, I'm also always aware of the the expectation that the school is going to have for for what I'm demanding and the inclination the system is going to have to keep me happy. And and there's a way to use that mm. for good for everybody. And there's a way that, like, I keep showing up and then the school's like, well, let's just, like, make sure that Andrew's kids get all of the best things so that he'll stop coming in and bothering us. You know, like, let's make sure that his kid gets recess and his kid gets uh, gets to talk during lunch. But maybe it doesn't actually, like, flow out to, to mm-hmm. all the kids. That's pretty interesting. Val asked a question earlier, like, what, what kind of things do y'all talk about? <laughs> like, what? What what are the expectations for white parents as opposed to black parents and like the anticipation that, well, we can't do this to this kid because they're going to show up. and mm-hmm. But for the black parents, we know that they're not going to show up. So if we knew they did, would that change how we treated? Like if those yeah. kids were in that class, if those teachers knew every single last one of those parents would show up angry, they would recess for all. <laughs> right, we'll figure right. something else out. I mean, one of the things that I struggle with is to call out the teachers. Like, if I feel like you as a teacher are doing this, I want to be the friend. I don't want to be the person who's yelling at the teacher. I want everyone to like me. So mm-hmm. I think I, like, need to find the courage to kind of approach those things and call those things out, I I, I think. But for all kids, I don't, I don't know if I've been much of a caller-outer. I don't know how much progress and I get from that. I think people just get defensive and then the conversation stops. I have to believe in order to keep in this effort, I have to believe that most people who are trying to educate our kids are trying to do their very best. Yeah. And so that's why the collaborative nature feels more right for me. Cause mm-hmm. I also want to understand what is happening with you and for you and to you. Yeah. So that we can get this fixed together. Because everybody in the school should be happy and joyful and thriving. I, I mean, I, I'm challenged by to tool the group, the things that they're doing. I'm working with an organization that we're really focused on calling out the district for failing to educate Black children at high levels. You, you've made a lot of progress through your collaborative efforts. And that just has me thinking about, like, what are the steps that we need to take to be collaborative and also unapologetic about our expectations for mm-hmm what the schools do and just like continuing to be like, we're not okay with these things. We have to keep speaking up. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much to tool Becky. It was a lovely conversation. Um, it, it, we certainly didn't put a tidy bow on it, but um, didn't, didn't expect to. Uh, mm-hmm. We're really grateful for, for both of you sharing and bringing your insight and your perspectives and uh, being willing to come on the podcast and yeah, look forward to having you back sometime. Thank y'all. Thanks for having us. Yeah. It's an Appreciate honor and a privilege. Thanks so much for having me. All right. So, Val, what did you think? Oh, man. You know, I, I love 
I love listening to folks and you and you and I know that we could have kept that conversation going for much longer than we did. Right. And I think it speaks to the need to have so many more of these conversations within our communities. People want to and need to figure out how to talk about these things together. And so I just appreciate the podcast being an opportunity to to bring folks around that. Yeah. And I'm also just, yeah, just so grateful to, to, to Tool and Becky for for showing up, for being willing to, you know, Becky sent in a voice memo. Little did she know that uh, next next thing she knew, her whole life story would be put out for the podcast <laughs> right. audience. So that um, is not to deter voice memos. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, come on, come on, because hopefully we gave her a space to process and have these conversations that she was clearly clearly yearning for. But yeah, also just filled with gratitude that people are willing to come on and and have these conversations with us because they're not always easy. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, they did exhibit courage. One thing that. Um, stood out to me from the very beginning is how both of them wanted their children to have different schooling experiences than they had. Mm, mm-hmm. And the those schooling experiences that they had were primarily white schooling experiences. For both of them. Yes, for both That's of right. them. And they were like, yeah. no, I want something different for my young people. Yeah, I wanted a similar experience for my kids that I had, which was also not a primarily white school. We're trying to grow a movement of people who recognize that this vision we have of good schools, which means white schools, is actually not good for our own kids and mm-hmm. not what we want. And I, and I know that those decisions, both for Tatul and Becky, you know, had different roots. But I what I gathered from both of them is that it would allow their children to access their own humanity in a way that they deeply wanted for their children, whether it's like comforting your own identity or comfort in the presence of others. For me, it it spoke to accessing their own humanity. And I know we don't talk about that a lot on the show, but talk about an outcome (laughs) for, for advocating for integrated learning spaces. Yeah. Is there an outcome that could be more important? than that but you know both for Mm -hmm. and again it's like one of the one of the tensions the one of sort of like themes that kind of ran throughout the episode and that we we do talk about a fair amount here is it's like you know is it good for me or is it good for society Mm -hmm. and sort of it's it's both but neither too much right but like Mm -hmm. talk about a an outcome that is good for your own kids if all you care about is your own kids them being able to find their own humanity like what what could be more important what could be more important than that and like what kind of world do we create where all kids are able to find their own humanity, you know, initially in school, but then like what are how do we carry that forward and what does society look like if all of our kids are going to school in spaces where they can find their own humanity? Mm-hmm. You know, that vision is very powerful and it certainly like drives, you know, my connection to this work mm-hmm. and something you said back in the intro, which is like that sounds nice and those are kind of simple words and yet the, <laughs> the path to get there is hard. Yeah. You know, and a lot of this episode stemmed from Becky's grappling with the joy that she has found in her school community and also the rage she feels at at being part of the school community, at finding community, at truly integrating her family into the school community and then recognizing all of these kind of systemic injustices. And I think that – and she maybe was holding back a little bit of that like – alternating between the the rage at the system and then the grief at you know there there is a sacrifice her kid is not getting some things that they might be getting at at other schools there's mm-hmm. things her kid is getting that she wouldn't get at other schools but there's also things these systemic inequities that show up that she is now kind of looking at face to face and and it and it's hard you know like there are things about her school that are that are not good mm-hmm. and that feels like a a kind of tough tension to live in yeah what i am thinking about right now is that rage that you talk about and I was trying to connect to my own feelings of rage in those instances and what I do with them. If I'm honest, that type of rage, those feelings of discontent are present in every aspect of being, I can say, black in America. I'm sure a person right. of color in America as well, right? right? So I have learned to function within it in a way that probably is why I'm having pause with even thinking about those feelings of rage because they are just, they are there. They're baked in. (laughs) They're baked in, right? And so it feels like because there are so many opportunities for that type of frustration with uh, my lived experience that I don't 
I don't have the the energy <laughs> to fight literally in every aspect of my life about it. Right. I have to. I, you, I can't. you have to have have made some peace with it, I or it would consume to. your whole life. Right. Because it is everywhere, and there's no peace with it. Mm, right. Right. Yeah. You've had to like. Right. Something has had to happen. Come, yeah. come, come to terms with your relationship with that rage or something. Yeah. I mean, what's interesting to me about that is this, and and you know, this this comes back to this idea of step two of our theory of change, desegregate, is like, and this is something that you said in the in the conversation, right? Is that there's a way in which white folks, in particular, are encouraged not to know about the discrepancies that exist. Mm-hmm. That we don't see the huge gaps that exist between the resources we give to one school versus another. Mm-hmm. And I think that there there's a way in which that creates this kind of you know almost like shock to to the white psyche when you arrive in a school and you see the discrepancies that actually exist you know there's like sort of a twofold shock the first is like oh this is not actually the terrible place that i was led to believe it is but then you get a little bit deeper you get part of me like wait but also the school down the block has has two full-time mental health people and my school has you know a two-day-a-week intern. Like, mm-hmm. what's up with that? Mm-hmm. The school down the block gets five different enrichment classes for every kid, and mm-hmm. my school can't afford an art teacher. What's up with that? Mm-hmm. And so there is this shock, and I, I think that something Becky said, you know, these systems that just perpetuate themselves, that the status quo is perpetuation, that one of the ways that happens is that we aren't aware, mm-hmm. is, that, is that white folks don't have this constant sense of these structures that are set up to be unfair, that are set up to perpetuate inequities. And so there is this this moment of you get inside the school and you show up in your school and you're like, oh, yeah, there's the white schools over there have more stuff. I'm not surprised mm-hmm. by that. My rage at baseline continues to be at baseline <laughs> because this is the this is what it means. Baseline, to be, rage. baseline rage. My baseline rage just like chills out. And and you know, Becky shows up. I have had similar experiences. I show up in a school, I'm like, what is this? This should not be the way the world works. Huh. You know, if there's a two day a week intern at, at my school versus two full time staffers at another school. I hope what every parent who decides to go to a global majority realizes about all the other parents there is that they don't love their kids any less. Right. Right. So I am not sending you to a school that isn't fully staffed or doesn't have the best equipment because I love you less. And I think, unfortunately, that becomes part of the narrative that outsiders might think about like these school places. And, you know, with Tatul's stories, I would make the argument that he loves his kids more. <laughs> right. Because he doesn't want to spirit murder them, right? Or put them mm-hmm. in a place where they question their identity. And he wants them to be whole. You know, I regularly go back to the idea from the most recent remake of Roots, The Shame Is Not Ours. The shame is not right. ours because the district hasn't decided to fully staff or to right. like fully fund. Like that is not our shame. That is that is someone else's shame. And I think part of the hope is that parents like us don't start talking to each other about <laughs> the differences. Right. Because then you have some explaining to do. And that's why like being in community with one another is is really important. Yeah, 100%. There are so many stories that we tell as a society that that try to put the shame on the the most marginalized. Mm-hmm. Right? The idea of meritocracy, the idea that if you work hard you get ahead, the idea that everyone has a fair shot that that we have equal opportunity. All these are stories that we tell to to deflect the shame onto mm. those who are most marginalized by it. Mm. And and we see that in schools all the time. And so you're like, oh, yeah, well, that, I don't know. Like, I don't know why that school is terrible, but it must be that the parents don't care. Mm-hmm. It must be that the kids can't learn or don't want to learn. And I think this is probably the 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 real power of desegregation. The real power of showing up in that school is quickly you look around and you see a school and there's kids and there's love and there's parents who care. Mm-hmm. The first shock of that is like, wait a minute, if that's true, Mm. If this is a school full of kids with parents who love them who are trying to mm. get the best for their kids and there are these discrepancies that exist, mm. then like, I can't put the shame on them. Mm. Now what? Mm. You know? And that's where now it's time for advocacy, right? Now it's time mm. to show up and and speak up and say, this is not okay. Oh, yeah. Talk about shaking your, to your whole core. You're like, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. Wait one minute. 
Yeah, no, that's got to be tough. That's got to be tough. <laughs> so, so it's it's interesting because one of the things that Integrate Schools does is this week. It's called Caregiver Connection. Okay. Where if you are thinking about enrolling your kid in Global Majority School, we'll connect you with another parent who's been there, who's done that, to provide this sort of sense of community and a support system, right? Mm-hmm. So we 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 posted about it on Instagram last week. Okay. We got a comment from one of our followers that said, "There's something odd about white parents needing a support group for <laughs> sending their kids to a diverse school." I'm a bit confused. <laughs> Literally. Look at y'all having scaffolds for people, okay? <laughs> like, y'all are trying everything possible to support white folks taking this leap. And, I mean, that's a lot. I mean, that that's a, that's a lot. And I imagine if your whole foundation has been taken away from you, you're going to need some support, right? right? And I think for majority folks of color in this country, that type of support is most likely built in where you've had multiple conversations about race and interacting with white folks and the talk and code switching. So, you know, I believe that support um, happens for communities of color too. I think it just feels surprising that white folks might not have that level of support with someone that they are currently connected to, that you are truly the only one in your network to do something Like, try to go to your neighborhood school. <laughs> that that right. just sounds outrageous when you say it's it out, out yeah. loud. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. The caregiver connection program is not minimizing the reality that, right, you have you you don't need a caregiver connection because this is built into your life because mm-hmm. you have been grappling with it since the day you were born. Mm-hmm. And there are legitimately white people who have not been forced to think about race at all until they're mm-hmm. – until ever, maybe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and – I think, you know, providing a support system for that is important. Yeah, yeah. And and I, I do think it's probably easy to assume that those conversations happen all the time or just not recognizing how many layers of support we have as folks of color. We have just across racial difference so many things that we can connect to and then so many experiences also that are like, oh, right. white folks don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, okay. Yeah. There's no reason for me to know, sweet Caroline. Not a one, but I do. <laughs> I do. <laughs> no yep. reason. Are I mean, white that, folks yeah, do that's that? <laughs> that's the beauty. That's the beauty of these conversations for me, for sure. Yeah. There's the there's this other sort of tension in what Becky mentioned in her original voice memo, which is like, you know, part part of the work of integrated schools is trying to convince white and privileged parents to send their kids to global majority schools. Mm-hmm. That's part of what we're doing here. And there's a way in which talking about the hard things that happen at the global majority school can feel sort of counter to that. Mm. The goal was never to like trick people into thinking that their experience was going to somehow be better than it is. Mm. That school integration is all easy, that you're only going to find hidden gems in Cotton these candy great clouds. schools. <laughs> Cotton candy clouds. <laughs> but there is a way in which kind of really looking at some of these inequities head on can discourage people. And I think, you know, to go back to what you said at the start of this conversation here is that like what we have all opted for is moving away from all white schools. Mm. And so holding the challenges that global majority schools often face from underfunding to you know, lack of enough teachers and principals and and discipline policies that maybe aren't entirely beneficial for kids. We have to weigh those against the the harms of all white schools, predominantly mm. white schools, mm-hmm. and and what that brings along as well. Because I think that uh, otherwise we're not really making a fair comparison. I'm glad you brought up that point because I, I think if I was white and a believer, and I'm like, yes, okay, integrated schools is telling me to show up, shut up, stay put. I think I would assume. That it meant that it was going to be easy, er, than yeah. probably what it is, and to remind ourselves that going against the status quo is a challenge, right? Yeah, it is. It's not the smoothest road, right? And I can see folks being discouraged when it's not the smoothest road. You told me to do this because it would be better for my kids, and this has been challenging. And so, you know, I also see this as an exercise in as caregivers, regaining our own humanity in ways that we may have lost it. Mm. Mm. Say more about that. Because the act of doing what you know is right, sticking with it, even when it's hard, teaching your young people how to adapt, advocating in the, in the face of challenges, 
that's all human work. And that is yeah. all work that I think is necessary for the future that we're trying to create. Yes. Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. Well, end of the episode, Val. Action steps. What are you taking away from this conversation? One thing that I want to encourage folks to do is think about their own schooling and talk to their young people in an age-appropriate way about their schooling experience and why they, they may be choosing a global majority school for their young people. I also want them, if they are facing challenges, not only assign that to, oh, this is because this is a global majority or a Black or under-resourced school, but that this is what it means to go against the status quo or this is what systemic injustice looks like and feels like. And so not assigning it to the humans that are there in the building as the source of the problem. Yeah, that, yeah, the the acknowledging our role in the system and putting the blame onto the system and then acknowledging our own role in the system. Like you said, it's not easy, it's not comfortable, but that's Mm -mm. important, important humanity affirming work for sure. How about you? What are your action steps after this? Yeah, well, you know, I'm thinking, I'm thinking a lot about, about Tatul and the organization he works with, the African American Parent Council in Pasadena. If there is an organization like that locally, wherever you are, find them and see what they need. Mm-hmm. We know that all families want a great education and want their kids to be successful. Every single one. We know that almost everywhere you turn, there are people who are fighting that good fight. And they may not have the resources. They may not have the fancy website. They may not be known to you and your network, mm-hmm. but they're out there and they are fighting for kids. And so doing putting in the work to go and find them and see what they need and see how you can help feels like another great step. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm just thankful. I'm thankful again for Becky for calling in and trusting us with a real concern and giving us an opportunity to bring some folks together to talk about it big yeah. ups becky thank you to yeah, for, for saying sure. yes yeah absolutely I, I i learned so much from the conversation and i'm so grateful to both of them and listeners grateful to you keep sending in your voice memos we listen to them all so that's we right love to hear love to hear from you uh go to the website integratedschools.org there's a little button that says leave us a voicemail on the side you can do that or you can just email us a voice memo from your phone podcast at integratedschools.org. And then this is another opportunity for you to listen, share, and gather others in community to have conversations around what we're talking about or similar conversations about what you're grappling with. Absolutely. And you can support this work by going to our Patreon, patreon.com slash integrated schools. Throw us a few bucks every month to help keep making this podcast. We would be very grateful for that support. Yes. Val, this was a great conversation. You know only dope people. Thank you for bringing Tatool into the conversation. And it is a pleasure, as always, to be in this with you as I try to know better and do better. Until next time. I can Where say hoodwinked. I can say hoodwinked. <laughs> uh, I don't know if you can say hoodwinked. <laughs>